New Yorkers Dreaming in the American Civil War. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Wanda Birch joins us. Thanks for coming on the program, Wanda. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Wanda Easter Birch, a historian who lives in the Mohawk Valley town of Glen, is a former site manager of Historic Johnson Hall in Johnstown, New York. She has written extensively about dreams and dreaming. Wanda's own dreams foretold her diagnosis of cancer years ago, then guided her toward treatment and wellness. She wrote about that experience in her book, She Who Dreams, A Journey into Healing Through Dream Work. In 2017, McFarland published a book written by Wanda called The Home Voices Speak Louder Than the Drums, Dreams and the Imagination in Civil War Letters and Memoirs. Obviously, this topic sounds like it's, as they say, right up your alley. What what led you to write this book? Several years ago, I was at a conference, an historic architecture conference in Savannah, Georgia, and I stopped by chance in a bookstore in that same city, and I pulled out a book of Civil War letters written by Georgian soldiers. And I opened it random, and the first words I saw were a quote. Soldier mortals would not survive if they were not blessed with the gift of imagination and the pictures of hope. The second angel of mercy is the night dream. Those words were written by Henry Graves in Petersburg, Virginia in 1862. He proceeded to share a dream so evocative and so real that he demanded when he woke to know where his beloved was and why she had abandoned him to the stench and noise of battle. I looked through the rest of the book really quickly, and it was filled with dreams. Intrigued and hooked, I began a search for similar letters which led me to archives, published journals, diaries, memoirs, paintings, music, and poems written in the 19th century from the battlefield and from home. In fact, you found that not only the soldiers, but also the commander-in-chief of the Union forces, President Abraham Lincoln, recounted some of his dreams. He dreamed about his late son, Willie, who died during the Civil War at the White House. Uh, can you tell us that story? Uh, yes, he was 11 years old when he died. He died of typhoid fever. And Lincoln was said to have shared a dream of Willie with Colonel Legrand Cannon of New York, who was the staff officer in the regular Army Department of Virginia. The president was sitting with him in a, in a tent and asked if the colonel had either the Bible or Shakespeare. He had both. The colonel had both. Lincoln chose Shakespeare and read to Colonel Cannon from Macbeth, Lear, and King John, reading the passage where Constance bewails to the king the loss of her child. Lincoln asked the colonel if he had ever dreamed of a lost friend and felt that in that dream, and this was a quote, you were having a sweet communion with that friend and yet a consciousness that it was not a reality. Cannon hmm. admitted that most people had those dreams. So do I, responded the president. I dream of my dead boy, Willie, again and again. The colonel cried with Lincoln that night and felt that he had been the recipient of a sacred trust. This confidence foreshadowed Lincoln's history of dreams and presentiments in which Lincoln was given detailed warnings of his own death, which a lot of people are familiar with, 
beginning on the eve of his renomination to the office of president and ending in the dream detailing very accurately seeing his body laid out in death. Hmm. Well, let's go on to the, the dreams of the, of the soldiers. There's one Union soldier named David Lane, and he had what you describe or maybe other people who look at dreams describe as travel dreams of home. Um, he made it home, I think. He survived the war. Uh, what? And uh, David Lane is also connected to a family who lived today near where you live in, in the town of Glen and near the village of uh, Fonda. But can you tell us the story of David Lane? Uh, David was um, assigned in August 12, 1862, to Company G of the 17th Regiment of the Michigan Volunteer Infantry. And as you said, his descendants live in New York State. Nephews and nieces settled in both Fonda and Glen, the oldest generation being in their 90s, and I'm not sure if they're still alive, Delbert and Rosemary Pierce, who lived in Fonda, and a younger generation, uh, grandfathered by Lee and Marlene Smith in Glen, New York, and they they still live here and treasure his, his memoirs. In his letters home to his wife and children, David was adept at what he called moving across time and space. And he was more willing than most to write about the process of crossing those boundaries, which uh, people call now out-of-body experiences. He wrote in 1864, My pastime is a dream of home and loved ones. From early morn until late at night, I am busy, yes, doubly busy. My mind is hard at work, far from the cumbrous body, annihilating space it leaps all barriers and pauses not until by my loved one's side he became what he called a frequent dream flyer racing to visit home gauging his experience to help him understand how to respond to his wife jane's uh, emotional response to his being far away from home on january 15 1863 he wrote that they had between them a bond of sympathy that knows no bounds and is confined by no space. He told Jane that many times he visited her, received visits from her, and the impression left was that of reality. Last night, he said, after I retired to rest, I held your hands in both of mine, trying to comfort and console you, and it was real as reality itself. Mm. And by the way, most of these soldiers describe these dreams on the battlefield as being more real than anything they'd ever experienced. Discharged on June 3, 1864, David wrote a last letter home dated June 8th. His entry, keeping with his imaginal journeys home, described every detail of his approach before he got there. His expectation of the first vision of his house, of Jane's first catching sight of him, of his children and how they would greet him. He recorded details like one almost speaking into a microphone. I am almost home, he said. I see the cottage now. They are on the lookout. In the east door stands my darling, waving her handkerchief, her dear face transfigured with joy and happiness. In the south door is my eldest daughter. Another daughter and my son have climbed the road fence, while Pet, the little lass, is running down the street fast as her little feet can carry her to leap into her father's arms and bid him welcome home. David was home. We did an earlier podcast on your book with music to illustrate one of the stories, the music provided by singer-songwriter John uh, 
Kenosian. Uh, by, by the way, maybe ask you this first: what, what what's happened? What happened to John? Um, John was battling with um, lung cancer, and he wrote ballads uh, for a program we did for Saratoga Arts for the year two thousand seventeen. And Amelia was just one of those. He wrote from some of the other dreams in my book, wonderful, wonderful songs. And um, the song Amelia is featured on the 77th New York Regimental Balladeers 70, uh, uh, CD called Come Dearest, the Daylight is Gone. And John lost that battle with lung cancer on July 29, 2018. Mm. Um, yes, that was very uh, moving. And then uh, Audrey and I went to see that program. I think you did it in Canajahari where we saw it. And it yes, was, uh, I, we, we did it in several places, yes. But what was, you know, you started to mention it. What story from your book did John Kenoshian uh, kind of illustrate with his music? Uh, the Amelia story um, comes from the story of John Tidd and uh, Amelia Haskell. And on Sunday morning, April 26, 1863, John Tidd was with the 109th New York Volunteers, and he wrote to what he referred to frequently as my dear friend Amelia that the homesick soldier often thought and meditated on the past pleasures of home and even thought he was enjoying the actual uh, pleasures of the home circle, quote, only to discover that he was in a midnight dream. He told Amelia she could not imagine the reality of being a soldier. Hard as it is, he said, we are all willing to endure the hardships and privations of a soldier's life. I, to leave home, friends, and all the comforts with which we were surrounded and go forth and fight the enemies of our country. He dreamed back and forth with, with Amelia. He fell ill during the last days of the war and was taken home to a hospital where he died on October 17, 1865. Your uh, book has uh, the stories from a number of New York soldiers and their, and their dreams. Maybe uh, here's, a, here's a list of them, if you can go through some of them. There was two brothers, James and Charles Terrell, uh, Richard Van Wick, Charles Bowen, a man named Frank Griffith, and a man named Richard Goldway. Can you tell us about them? Well, brothers James and Charles Terrell joined separate regiments. James, the New York 118th Regiment, and Charles, the New York 22nd, both enlisting at Chester, New York. Charles wrote to a brother, Mortimer, on September 1st, 1861, that he dreamed of their mother most every night, and again in November to give their mother love and to tell her, I dream of her seeing almost seeing her almost every night. Richard Van Wick was with the 150th New York Volunteer Infantry, and he wrote to his cousin, Sarah Van Vechten, after an 1863 visit home, that in sleep and dreaming, I see you all well at home. Sergeant Charles Bowen enlisted in Company G, Ogden, New York. Just prior to enlisting, he married Catherine, or Kate, Hammond. Their daughter was born before he enlisted. He dreamed of his wife and baby almost every night, and in the fall of 1861, he had a regular dream in which he was home on a pass. Kate was the first one to meet him, sat on his knees, your arms around my neck, mine around yours, and such a time we had. I thought while all our for folks were around me, I could talk to no one but Katie for a long time. Oh, such a good time as we had. 
It seems so real that it even makes me feel now as though I had seen you. Charles was discharged in 1864 and went home to Kate and his baby. Frank Griffith's wife was present almost nightly in his dreams. He astutely and quickly determined that dreaming of home was not only his lifeline to a loving, familiar place and a refuge from intense loneliness, but also a forerunner of what lay before him, ultimately giving him confidence in his survival and a return to home. He had enlisted in Company K of the 116th New York Volunteer Infantry on September 2, 1862. In October, he wrote to his wife, whose name was Thankful, that he would never forget home because her dear face was in his waking and sleeping. In my dreams, your dear face is ever present with me. In an autumn letter, 1863, from the aptly named location Camp Misery, Frank dreamed Mm. not only that he was home, but the war was over. Promising to continue to share dreams of her, he asked for a new likeness of her this time with a looking glass opposite the likeness so that they would be side by side. If I could just uh, interject, uh, his wife was named Thankful. People had names like like that, I guess. Yes, they do. It's (laughs) it's fun seeing some of the names of of, um, women, um, particularly women in that period, Providence and Thankful, a couple of them. Mm. Um, and then the Goldwaits, they're, they're even closer to home. Richard Matthew Goldwaite was born in Albany, New York, in 1825, and he married a young woman, Ellen Trice Hill, who worked in Albany as a milliner. Ellen, or Ellie, as she was known, was born also in Albany in 1840. Richard enlisted in the 3rd Regiment Infantry, New York Volunteers, also known as the 1st Albany. Ellie moved into the country. Now, she's talking about Clifton Park, which I don't think we think of as the country anymore, Uh, with Richard's family, immediately bored and lonely because she was accustomed to the bustle and social life of the big city of Albany. With barely any time to get acquainted as a couple, their link to one another was a continual stream of letters and detailed dreams which assured Ellie from the very start that her new husband would return healthy and whole to her before the war's end. In 1862, she revealed she was fat with a baby dreamed many months before. Richard Mm -hmm. wrote to Ellie in 1863 and said, Sometimes you dream what will come to pass. Well, he knew by then she dreamed more often than not the things that would come to pass. Ellie wisely reminded him of a dream. She said, I was standing in George Van Vechten's store door, and you came along walking on the sidewalk, eating a piece of pie, and you looked as independent. I thought everybody was looking at you eating pie in the streets, but you did not seem to care for anyone. I thought I said to myself, Dick has been drinking a little too much brandy. He feels good in spirits anyway. Ellie loved the dream. It brought Richard home to her and into the city where she longed for them to be. Mm. Both Richard and Ellie's two years of dreaming Richard home finally came to pass when Lieutenant Richard Matthew Goldway was honorably discharged from the Army on June 5, 1863. He moved with Ellie to Albany, where they lived on Central Avenue. Richard worked as a tobacconist in business with, yes, his cousin, George Van Vechten, as predicted in Ellie's true storefront dream just months before. 
Richard, as a young businessman, would have every reason to eat pie and feel independent as Ellie dreamed him. Their first child was a girl, not a boy, but was a pretty baby as dreamed by both Ellie and Richard. Did people walk around in the 1860s eating pie? That was kind of a. I I don't think they did. I think that's why she thought that made him look very independent because he was feeling so full of, and maybe why she also thought he was drinking because he was so full of himself. He was eating pie. Many uh, soldiers spent time in prison in the in the Civil War, and these were often uh, dreadful places. In particular, one uh, a bad prison, I believe it was in Georgia, the Andersonville uh, prison. And you have, I think, a couple of uh, people that you profile in your book, uh, John Mayle and Chaplain Charles Hager, who talked about the dreams they've had in prisons. Uh, John Mayle particularly had a, a long and, and very important dream. And many of the prisoners dreamed of food, including John Mayle. And he even illustrated his little journal with a basket of food. And one person, um, John McElroy, said that soldiers could either survive dreaming of food or they could go crazy, which I could also understand. And as you said, death in Civil War prisons accounted for 10% of all fatalities in the Civil War. And in Andersonville alone, over 30,000 men were packed into 26 acres, living on rations of salt pork, cornmeal, and beans with no fruits or vegetables, eating rats when desperate, and feeling blessed if they avoided and or survived disease. John Mayo was actually with the 8th Regiment Michigan Volunteer Infantry, and he was in several prisons, one of them Andersonville. And he wrote at length about this particular dream, which he attributed to saving his sanity and his life. And it was set in his hometown in, uh, in New York, the dream recall in Niagara County, New York, it recalled a memory set in a village on Old Ridge Road in Niagara County, and the area was noted for its orchards, and in the dream, the flowering trees were in full bloom. He saw, felt, and tasted the once familiar scenes of sharing life in this village, including the plate of tasty food. He saw a family he recognized heading for the village church. The woman had her husband's health in mind, and John realized she was imagining that her husband was in danger in a situation that mirrored his own. He saw her rising from her bed and begging prayerful intercession for her beloved. And then in the confusing genealogy of this assemblage, he suddenly saw himself now as a child in this dream, instead of the husband, following along to the church, and the woman in the dream praying now for the child, him. John awakened from this dream, astonished that instead of receiving the anticipated dream of approaching death, he had been gifted a vision so vivid and so real that it transported itself into healing in the prison pen. Instead of despair, he felt hope. He had seen and heard the real voices of loved ones, and he felt their concern for little Johnny translated into hope and healing for John, the imprisoned soldier. The dream changed his path from death to a path of life and health and to survival. And Chaplain Charles Charles Hager, uh, what what did he dream about? Charles was a chaplain with the 108th New York Adirondack Regiment. He lived in Plattsburgh, New York, with his wife Elizabeth. His letters bloomed with love for his children, wife, and home. 
and dreams, music, and poetic sentiments punctuated the harsh environment of his ministry to the sick and wounded. Through all of it, he wrote, The Home Voices Speak Louder Than the Drums, which became the title for the book. Charles' mm-hmm. first recorded dream was penned in 1862, six miles from Petersburg and 15 miles from Richmond. The dream, he said, was simple, but so vivid that he found it difficult to throw off the impression all day, and he longed for home. On February 21, 1863, Charles dreamed that his wife was sitting alone in the sitting room, appearing lonely and lonesome. Determined to create a happy scene of home, he wrote to her that she must have her image taken, thinking of how close it would bring them and the smile it would put on her countenance. He followed through. In his next location, he passed by a shop shop that charged a dollar and fifty cents for a picture taken. This was an outrageous price, by the way. Mm-hmm. He had his photograph taken and sent to his wife. Charles was then pleased that a new dream painted a much more pleasing portrait of Elizabeth. And he said, or he wrote, I dreamed of you last night, thought you were well and happy, hope it is so. I can imagine how the old home with its surroundings look. In 1865, Charles Hager wrote, You are aware that my imagination is very vivid, so I imagine a kiss to you every night before I go to sleep. (laughs) Are there African-American dreams? Or let me ask you about that. Apparently, you do have in your book uh, the dreams of uh, Harriet Tubman. I I do, and um, a a lot of people are actually familiar with those. She was described as a Moses of her people, and it was a touchstone for all those living and dying for the freedom of enslaved people. Dreams guided her and restored Harriet. She could fly like a bird in her dreams and gain insight to landscapes that were pivotal maps for the journeys to freedom, and she could literally chart, chart out where she was going based on her dreams. And before the end of the Civil War, Harriet grew weary and impatient for a dreamed emancipation after leading so many people to freedom. And when Lincoln finally signed the emancipation, she chose not to join in the festivities. She said, I had my jubilee three years ago. I rejoiced all I could then. I can't rejoice no more. And she lived out her life on a farm in Auburn, New York. Slave narratives collected between 1936 and 1938 by the Federal Writers Project for the WPA were a primary resource recording personal experiences and dreams of antebellum African Americans, uh, many of whom were still alive and sharing their stories. Some, such as those written and published by Frederick Douglass and Solomon Northrop, influenced public opinion. While never giving up hope of seeing home and family again, Solomon dreamed dreams of freedom before the Civil War, but his story remained an important memory during the Civil War. When sleep came through deprivation, torture, and pain, through the wounds of being beaten and starved, continual thirst gnawing at his insides, heart sick and discouraged, Solomon dreamed I was again in Saratoga. I dreamed that I could see their faces and hear their voices calling me, awakening from the pleasant phantasma of sleep to the bitter realities around me. I could but groan and weep. Still, my spirit was not broken. I indulged the anticipation of escape. 
these dreams were 12 years in becoming Solomon's waking reality again, and uh, many people have read, read his 12 years a slave. But the homecoming, when it occurred, was the most joyous moment of his life. Mm-hmm. The WPA interviewers mentioned before used a set of questions designed to mine the young memories of former slaves, most of the time in their older age. They were usually asked simply, do you remember dreams? And the answer was generally yes. Visions were addressed apart from the dreams and would often reflect a memory of a funeral, seeing the dead, or more often, getting religion. Dreaming of Lincoln could be particularly dangerous. Reports noted that a slave didn't share dreams or visions of Abraham Lincoln. It terrified the owners that Lincoln was showing up in their dreams. A young slave named Charlotte told her dream and was nearly beaten to death. We're running uh, out of time. We're close to the end of our time together. Do soldiers still record their dreams today? Yes, many do. The dreams speak to every generation, from the first man to defend a piece of ground to those returning home from more technologically brutal modern wars. Brian Turner, writing from a recurring dream of home in Iraq, rights of home with the same sense of reality of those in the Civil War. I dream I started having I, when I was first in Iraq. I'm back home in the San Joaquin Valley, 20 miles north of Fresno, and I'm sort of a disembodied, hovering version of myself, drifting in and out of the eucalyptus trees. It's a dream I like, one I always want to last longer, drifting between those trees. The clarity is far beyond most of my dreams. A young woman coming home from Iraq, tears in her eyes, said to me, I thought I was the only person who dreamed of home in the middle of a nightmare. Mark Huber, a Vietnam War combat veteran, said that the veterans of all war dreams find themselves naked in the dark. The important piece is whether or not dreams of home do or do not become nightmares after the war, and whether or not they help the war veteran manage their lives when they're home again. Separating the warrior from the war and the return home has been a dilemma since the beginning of time. PTSD is not new. Its aliases have shifted in terminology and definition. And from the first armed conflict, when the first weapon was used against another, dreams of home would become barren and turned into nightmares. And when events took on a terrifying life inside the mind, the words describing the desperate mental states changed, but the condition did not. Recognizing the power of dreams of home and family and of the gifts of imagination could still be the angel of mercy and the missing piece to returning today's soldier safely home and offering families healing from the nightmare of war, a place where souls and hearts can mend and find humanity when horror and terror force themselves into the most protected and private places that struggle to keep body and spirit together and whole. Wanda Birch's author of The Home Voices Speak Louder Than the Drums, Dreams, and the Imagination in Civil War Letters and uh, Memoirs. Just quickly, uh, Wanda, are people today dreaming about the pandemic? Uh, yes, they are. And there is relevance between soldiers dreaming in a battlefield camp and people dreaming in isolation in a pandemic. It's a time of anxiety and crisis, not unlike a war. In the Civil War letters, there's the same quality of immediacy and revelation, the same hope for a short ending of a crisis that would be over before it began. 
and changing to the waking reality of a lengthy contest that could and did bring death, illness, and isolation. So the same feelings haunt American life and dreaming, but not as weird and strange as people think. They reflect our surroundings and lives just as they did on the Civil War battlefield and on the home front of those quarantined away from people we love. Our culture is not so far removed from the Civil War that we cannot reclaim the power of dreaming as a vital part of healing after a physical and spiritual nightmare. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.